Welcome to Middle School Walk and Talk, a podcast series offering heart, hope, and health to members of our middle school communities. Take a walk with co-hosts Phyllis Fagel and Joe Mazza as they discuss self-care, student well-being, school culture, and more. Middle School Walk and Talk is a production of the Association for Middle Level Education and is designed to support the concepts outlined in our foundational text, The Successful Middle School, This We Believe. Learn more at amle.org. Today's episode, Reimagining School Discipline, with special guests Nathan Maynard and Dr. Belinda George. We're here live from AMLE 22 with uh, a special guest here, or two special guests with us uh, today. So we're going to do some uh, introductions and uh, talk about some restorative practices and, and how we're shifting our approach with students in our classroom. So welcome, Nathan. Thanks, Joe, for having me on. So my name is Nathan Maynard. I've been doing restorative practice now for about 15 years. I started out as a youth worker. I worked in a residential treatment care center for my first eight years. Then from there, I jumped into education, started out as a college career readiness coordinator. I taught some CTE pathway classes at a high school. And then from there, I became a school administrator, did that for about a year and a half at a school in Lafayette, um, a high school. And then I transitioned down to Indianapolis, Indiana, where I currently reside. And what I did there was I helped open up a school for underserved and underprivileged youth as um, one of the founding admin, and I did that for two years. And now what I do is full-time sort of supporting schools and educators all around the country, some international stuff as well, around restorative practices. I'm also the co-author of the book, Hacking School Discipline, um, and the co-founder of a software support system called Behavior Flip that helps out with just communication around restorative practices and implementation of that. Hi, I'm Belinda George, and I work with Nate. Um, I'm no longer in education, but I love to um, help and keep educators motivated. I was an educator for 16 years, uh, primarily in elementary. I taught fourth grade for six years, and I was an instructional coach slash curriculum coordinator for two years, and then I became a um, supervisor for ELAR. And then after that, I was an AP for two years at an elementary school and in an elementary, I mean, um, assistant principal at a high school for two years and then back to elementary for two years. While being an educator, I also um, got international fame for Tucked In Tuesdays when I became a principal. And that's where I met Nate. And Nate had restorative discipline and behavior flipped. And we talked a couple of times on the phone. And a really neat fact is Nate and I just met face to face today for the very first time. Um, but Nate and I, Nate has taught me a lot about discipline and how building relationships, relationships and restorative discipline helps educators and students alike. Belinda, one of the things we were talking about right before we started recording is that many relationships have been tested, particularly in the last couple of years, just because there's so much pressure on educators right now, so much pressure on parents and students. What can you tell everyone listening that you think might be helpful in terms of preserving peace or helping people repair those frayed relationships and restore what they might have had prior to recent stressors? 
most definitely being transparent and vulnerable. A lot of times people don't listen to you because they don't think that you've walked in the shoes that they have. So I think as a teacher being transparent with kids and letting them know you made the same mistakes they're currently making instead of just telling them not to do it, but that telling them why and letting them know that you, that you went through it. Also, coworker to coworker is having a lot of activities where they get to know each other outside of work. As a principal, I would do this spin this wheel with all the employees and the two names that it landed on, they would have to tell something they knew about each other. And that wasn't always a good thing. They worked in the same building, but they didn't know each other. And so that way they started communicating more so they, they can build relationships and you could see them starting to merge, not just within buildings, from building to building. So I like that. What a cool activity. And Nathan, I know Joe has a lot of questions for you about restorative practices, but before he gets into the nitty gritty of all of that, I would love for you to share a little bit about your personal story, if you're willing. I know that you came into this work for really authentic reasons, and I think that it might be helpful for others to, to hear your experiences. Of course. Yeah, so um, when I was going through college, um, what I started noticing that I was started working at a part-time residence treatment care center that I ended up going full-time with and I fell in love with it because I started noticing that the kids I was working with was a lot like me and that's really what sparked the interest but before that um, you know I was raised um, by my grandfather who's an immigrant from Italy um, raised up with my grandfather we didn't have a lot of resources we lived in the public housing system um, didn't have a lot of support. My grandfather was, you know, a hustler by nature. He was always out there trying to do stuff and, and trying to get stuff for us and our family. Um, but, you know, we, we didn't have a lot. And when I moved back in with my um, parents and my brothers, I was about the eight years old. And at that time, I was really disconnected from the community because, you know, my grandfather's from um, Italy, but we lived in Harlem, New York City. And then we moved over to Indianapolis or uh, up in Marion, Indiana. And then from there, um, I just didn't know anybody. I didn't really fit in into the schools, didn't really fit in with my family. I started acting out. Um, throughout my time, I started to slowly get more and more and more trouble, more and more disconnected from the community. Um, and it was actually middle school where I was at this peak. I was at this peak of, you know, getting, you know, street life stuff. I was interacting with a lot of gang members, um, sort of clicked up and, and trying to support them and, and trying to feel the belonging with that different group. And, and I just didn't really know what else to do. I, I had really poor grades, had the exact date of when I wanted to drop out of school, um, you know, all set up and it was in eighth grade. And then what happened was I was actually in an in-school suspension room at the time and there was a math teacher there. And this math teacher was just watching the in-school suspension time during his lunch break. I didn't know this math teacher, didn't have any interactions with him. And it was the first time I ran into him. My name was very known in the school as sort of a troublemaker, had a lot of stuff taking place. Um, and this math teacher, you know, came up to me when I was sitting there because it was just him and I. And he said, you know, do you want to stay in Marion, Indiana for the rest of your life? And I thought he was trying to like trigger me and mess with me at the time. And I was pretty worked up. Um, and I was like, what are you talking about? And then it turned out that he was trying to say, well, you don't have to. There's other things that you can do. And so I asked him, you know, what are you talking about? And then he started slowly opening up the door and telling me about college. Um, once he started telling me about college, um, he told me, you know, hey, if you score high enough in high school, you can get this, you know, high GPA. And then if you get a high GPA, what ends up happening is you get, you know, free money to live anywhere you want to live, you know, student loans, and um, you can go out and move around. So 
I was really excited about that. And he's like, and if you don't do it, let's talk about how much rent is. Let's talk about what it costs to live on your own. Like, let's talk about like, you know, the things that may not go well. Cause I knew the day I knew where I was going to move into, but you know, he was telling me like, this may not work out. So he really opened up that door for me. So then I started asking questions. I started talking to people that went to college. I started to research it on my own. I started to go through, um, you know, just talking to different people. And then what I found out was, you know, I, I wanted to go to college. I wanted to do something different. So then when I went to high school, I tried. I, I worked really, really hard. I was committed. I wanted to, you know, do a great job on my GPA. So I got that free money, those grants, those scholarships and go off to school. And, um, and in high school, I graduated at the top of my class. I was number three in my class. I almost got a perfect score on my SAT test. Um, I mean, like there were so many things that I did that I had no idea I was capable of doing, but I was using all this energy to try to find belonging from different people in my community because I didn't fit in with my family, didn't fit in with the educators, didn't fit into some of my friend groups. So it really sparked me. And when I was working at that, carry home for children and seeing these kids that were very similar to me, very similar life paths, very similar life experiences. Um, you know, I had a, a lot of adverse childhood experiences when I was growing up. Um, you know, I, I realized this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I stayed there for eight years and went into education. I'm still going to always support kids, always support educators and do this work. So it's my passion. It's my purpose. It's why I'm here. I, I love knowing that. Um, cause I, I, done my own research about you and read your book and listened to some other podcasts. And, you know, I think our, our stories are just so underrated. You know, you've built over your lifetime an empathy for the need for schools to evolve and, and, and not just focus on, okay, we have a discipline code. It's really tough. Kids are going to be held accountable. So the community can feel good about that. Um, where there's a lot of research out there now not like it's new, but there's research out there now. It's more and you're helping to spread that. Can, can you give us a, a, um, a little bit of, you know, why do we need to transition based upon the science of it, based upon what we've learned? Because, you know, I've been suspended as a kid. I've suspended kids over my career. I can't tell you that it improved my behavior or that it improved any of those kids' behaviors. Exactly. Um, and, and, and this is arguably the most important work that's happening in schools is, is, is transitioning to a more restorative approach. Tell us about the why in the event that, you know, teachers just haven't heard that part yet. Absolutely. I think that a lot of times with our discipline systems, we look at trying to change behavior with fear. We try to create fear-based response, and that's what punitive discipline does for kids is if you scare the kid or they feel something around something, they change their behavior. And sometimes, yes, you will get compliance. Yes, you will get sometimes short-term compliance, but is that a transferable skill? And if it's not a transferable skill, why are we doing it? And sometimes that transferable skill is about you don't fit in. You don't belong here. There, there's not a relationship there. So then these kids start to slowly distance themselves instead of really trying to connect more into what's taking place. So we use punitive discipline for that short-term compliance without that transferable skill. It pushes ostracism, pushes all these different things. We also understand the brain so much better now. We understand that the way that the brain responds to situation is very based on our lived experiences. We understand that that amygdala, that fight, flight, or freeze response to the brain sometimes becomes hypervigilant into situations. And sometimes when we are trying to respond to a situation and we push something to change the behavior and, and we get this big lash, we get this big push back, we say, well, that consequence didn't work. Let's try something more firming. Let's try something harder. Let's try something. But these kids just are having unmet needs and these kids are not used to this, you know, response or that amygdala is going off. We also understand that with these kids, fear-based 
ways that we do stuff in schools takes away from an engagement, takes away from relationships that we all want to focus on as educators. So we can't be doing something that's causing fear and saying we want to build a relationship. You know, I'm not going to go around someone that makes me feel fearful around them. So why are we having these kids that are forced to be around us at all times, have fear-based responses to do stuff, and then blaming the kids for these practices? We understand now the brain science, we understand now human connection is, is the most important thing that we can do as educators. So restorative practices says, yes, there's still gonna be high levels of expectations. Yes, there will still be responsibility. Yes, there'll still be consequences, but we can do all of these different things without a fear-based response, without something that makes us feel better and something that teaches the kid. If a student has a reading deficit and it's in the IEP that every time they struggle with reading, we're gonna take away their book for three days, people would look at us like that's ludicrous. Why are we doing this? So what are we doing this for discipline practices and behavioral stuff? If there's a student that needs behavioral support, what can we work on with them directly? If a kid says, I just get mad, let's work on some coping skills. Let's work on your triggers. Let's work on your cues. Let's create an action plan together. Let's co-construct it. And let's work on communication. We also understand that with punitive discipline, you know, it's very focused on just the kid behavior. With restorative discipline, it's focused on everything. It's focused on the environment. It's focused on us as the educators. Sometimes we're the ones that's causing the trauma. We're the ones that are triggering the situations. So sometimes we have to have that level of vulnerability to really focus on what that looks like and to model that with our kids through that and through accountability. So accountability happens on both sides. Expectations are they're still there, but we're doing something that's trying to look at things logically and naturally with consequences and based on relationships. Thank, thank you for elaborating on that, Nathan. And um, I, I know that um, Phyllis has her own questions, but I, what I would like for the middle school teachers that are listening to kind of get a taste of is, you know, oftentimes teachers can't change the policy in a district or in a school, but they are in control of the classroom at the classroom level. So between the two of you, you know, I think what can teachers do that are listening to start to transition here to try and take some risks because this is outside of you know necessarily their comfort zone if they haven't you know really been trained officially what can they do in their classrooms on a day-to-day -day basis to take more of a restorative approach so i think a lot of times i like to reflect back when i was um, in middle school or high school did i have adults in my life regularly apologize to me that can be professional adults, that can be personal adults. And if I didn't, I wasn't being modeled what we expect of the kids. So starting there is a huge start. Having the kids work through something, when they make a mistake, having them fix it. We wanna also, when we make a mistake, having us fix the situation as well. So if a teacher makes a mistake, they go back and fix it. Let's say that, you know, I, I'm reflecting back and let's say that Phyllis, you know, my friend in class, you know, as the teacher, she was she was acting up. So, you know, I, I came pretty firm on Phyllis and I told her like, hey, you're not gonna talk like this. And I and I let her have it in the hallway. And then I was sitting back the night, night and I was thinking about it. And I was like, man, I shouldn't have talked to a student like that, I'm an adult. Why did I talk to a student like that? And I start reflecting. And then, you know, the next day I go up to Phyllis and I say, hey, Phyllis, you know, the way that I was talking to you um, was something that if I saw you talking like that to another student, I would have said something. And it's not respectful for me to talk like that to you. And I do have authority as the educator. And that is not fair for me to talk to you like that, even when you did make a mistake. So I'm not going to talk about the mistake. I want to say that I am sorry for what I did. And is there anything that I can do to fix it with you? And starting there increases a level of vulnerability for me personally, that has transformed relationships in my life. Because what that does is shows that we are all humans, we all make mistakes, and we can fix things. So if you're an educator, and you're listening in, and you're thinking, what can I do to start fixing this? It starts with us 
modeling that vulnerability and also starts with just forming those relationships and understanding that that probably made my friend Phyllis in class she probably now understands like, wow, adults do make mistakes and they can they can fix things too. Because if we're not having that model with us when we were a kid, what ends up happening is that we just don't understand things. We don't understand the connect. And sometimes adults in our life are making horrible, horrible decisions as a kid. And we look at that and we learn from that behavior. And that's something that happened with me. You know, when those big situations were taking place and I'm like, is that normal? And sometimes you don't know if it's normal or not until you experience different things. So as educators that care about kids, that love kids, let's start there. Let's model when we make a mistake, fixing things. I love that because I don't even think kids necessarily know how to make an, a proper apology. That is a social skill, just like giving a compliment or learning how to enter a conversation. So the more we model that for them, the more they actually learn how to do it themselves, put it into practice. I know we're almost out of time, but I had another question for Belinda, going back to your uh, Tucked in Tuesdays and reading books to kids and that preemptive relationship building that you were doing. Long before we get to the point where we're doing that restorative work, where we're doing those apologies because they're necessary, we can do a lot to foster that positive relationship in the first place. What are your tips for listeners on creating those relationships with students? And are there any really actionable, practical ways that they can do that with their busy schedules? Yes, I'd like to piggyback off of Nate with the apologies. One of the little girls that I'm going to talk about in our presentation with her parents' permission is Anaya Grice. Anaya was this kid. She did not apologize. And I remember one time I told her, the teacher said, tell me you're sorry. And Anaya started using profanity. And so I said, Anaya, why would why wouldn't you say you were sorry? She said, because I'm not sorry. I'm not going to say I'm sorry because I'm not a sorry person. I apologize. If she asked me to apologize, I would apologize. And that was like, I never thought of it that way. And so Anaya taught me to not say, say you're sorry. And also not to tell you to say it if you don't mean it. But uh, the other practices with, with Tucked in Tuesdays, I grew up in a home with an abusive dad, not to us, but my, but with my uh, mom. And my dad was a weekend alcoholic and he would beat my mom and we would have to run. Well, Monday when school came, because he would only do it on a weekend, Monday when school came, we had to, we were dressed, we had pigtails, we had little plaid skirts, tights, and my teachers didn't know we ran all night to stay alive, or well, my mom to stay alive. And so I always say they missed us because they always hugged the stinky, smelly kids and not the kids that look put together or the honor roll students. So when I became a principal and I started reading because I was thinking, well, I don't have kids. So I thought, how could I help families with being without being too intrusive because I was already doing home visits because you can't teach Teach kids if you don't know exactly what you're teaching, if that makes sense. So I did home visits and I learned that my kids were a lot of latchkey kids. So I started reading online and then it became a really big thing, which I really borrowed the idea from a teacher, but I just called it Tucked in Tuesdays and wore a onesie and did it every night at 7.30 p.m. Central. And the kids would ask me questions like, Dr. George, I didn't know you slept at night or I didn't know you lived in a house. And so building those relationships and start having conversations outside of school, I think helped with a lot of the discipline. And the parents started trusting my decisions as an educator because I knew their kids. So like Nate said, those being punitive towards kids. I'm like a principal that was 
an exception. I didn't fuss at kids because I always wanted to know their why. And so when they came into my office, I would say I would start at what they did and work backwards. And nine times out of 10, they realized they, that little light bulb goes off and they go, oh, I shouldn't have said that. And so teaching them the why instead of the what you're being punished for helped a lot. Just want to thank both of you for for joining us today, and and you know the things I'm reflecting about in my my head. The message here is, you wouldn't treat anyone that you care about in a way that's punitive. So why not treat kids as human beings as well, right? You know, I think whether we're apologizing, whether we're um, doing a home visit, you know, trying to get to know them at a deeper level, getting back to what you where you started with the empathy of the situation and allowing them to know that you're gonna be a trusted adult for them. It's gonna take time to develop that relationship, but you know, and then the other kids that they talk to because middle school social, everybody knows about everything. They know what the approach is and in terms of like changing the culture, you know, all those activities contribute to that, not just on one day or one action, but that collection, you know, of all those moving forward. So before we let you go, would you just kind of tell us how we can find you on social media, your website and whatnot? Yeah. So um, I'm active on Twitter. Um, my handle is in Maynard EDU and, you know, my full name is Nathan Maynard. Um, my website is just restorativegroup.org. Um, you know, I and again, just one last closing thing for me is just, you know, when you're thinking about this stuff, you're reflecting on it. We're allowed to make mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. We just have to focus on the fixing things. So I think a lot of times we go into things and, and we get nervous because sometimes we don't know how to apologize. We don't know how to own stuff, too. So it's OK to have that vulnerability and to learn in this process. But just open communication is huge. On Facebook, I have Tucked in Tuesdays. I also have Growing with Dr. Belinda George. On Twitter, it's at Tucked in Tuesdays. Instagram is BCG55. And also TikTok, all we do is this because kids don't listen to people they can't relate to. Thank you both so much for coming today.